this evening as we turn to the book of Jude. We're turning to the book of Jude this evening, and by God's grace, we will be completing our sermon series through this epistle of Jude. It's been a wonderful study together as we've studied God's Word and walked through the teaching of being on guard within the church, finding ourselves in this modern moment, hearing Jude's pastoral message to us, and it has been helpful and strengthening to us as a church family. And we now come to the final two verses of Jude's epistle, coming to the great benediction that is, as I said this morning, has been a favorite for pastors for time immemorial to read to the church at the close of a service or at the close of a gathering to remind them, to remind us of who our great God is. And not only of who He is, but of what He can do, of His preserving grace, His preserving power. So the title tonight of the message is, He Will Hold Us Fast. Or more specifically, if you want to personalize it, He Will Hold Me Fast, if you want to put it in that way in your notes, to make it even more intimate and more personal. Look with me there in Jude. Jude is the short book just before the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, and we look now in verse 24. And Jude summarizes his book by saying this, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, from falling, and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever, Amen and Amen. This is the word of the Lord. You know, when we think about the world that we live in, one thing we can say for sure amongst many things is that we live in a world of temporary, don't we? Things are introduced today, and they very quickly either dissipate, uh, break down, and they're gone tomorrow. Things are novel today. And then in just a short period of time, they are old news or broken or on the trash heap. And one thing that we find that is often the case is that when you buy a particularly electronic, let's take that as an example, when you buy that new TV at Costco or some new device at Best Buy, it's not enough to simply buy the device. You're also being sold a warranty. What is the warranty, you ask? Well, our product is the finest on the market, but should it not be, the warranty will help cover the gap. You know, we hear a lot about these things, don't we? And honestly, every time I think about a warranty, it makes me lose confidence in the product that I'm buying. Why should I have to? If your product is a good product, it was brand new, and I'm shelling out the, the bucks. We live in a world of warranties, don't we? Security plans, backup plans, coverage upon coverage. Here's the insurance plan you need, but here's the gap coverage in case that doesn't work, right? But when we come to our salvation, Jude is a wonderful pastor who moves our attention from this temporary world in the here and now, the focus of all that is temporary, the threat of wolves within the church, the threat of apostate teachers, who would seek to come in, not by the way, the truth, and the life, but who would seek to come in through another entrance, if you will. He directs our attention not upon all of that, but he has guided us through that, no doubt about it. But now at the close of this epistle, he brings our focus and our attention upon our eternal salvation that we have in God. 
Friends, I want to tell you this evening that even though we live in a world of temporary, we do not have a temporary salvation. Even though things are here today and gone tomorrow, the gift of eternal life is just that. It's eternal. In fact, John chapter 3, verse 16 says this, maybe the most popular verse and maybe the whole world outside of judge not lest you be judged in, in the Sermon on the Mount. Notice here, maybe in a way that you don't hear it as often. John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him, on him, notice here, should not perish but have everlasting life. What a wonderful truth this is. And so as we consider for a few moments the stack pole or the pillar that is actually undergirding this text, it is the pillar of what we call the doctrine of preserving grace. The doctrine of maybe you've heard it known as the perseverance of the saints. Maybe you've heard it like this. This is the doctrine of eternal security. The bottom line is this. What God grants and what God gives cannot be undone few doctrines of scripture are more precious and comforting to the children of god than that of god's preserving grace and that right there is my favorite way of summarizing the pillar that is underneath verses 24 and 25 here tonight some would say eternal security some would say perseverance of the saints some would say whatever uh, but i like to say god's preserving grace it's all of his grace and it is all for his glory friends all glory be to Christ. Well, as we think about this doctrine, first of all, as we introduce the doctrine and then look into verses 24 and 25, we know from Scripture that this is not a doctrine, as Paul in the book of Acts describes as, as in a corner. It's not something to the side or uh, neglected. So, for example, Romans 8, verse 38, concludes with this. Our teens are memorizing this passage on Wednesday nights, and every Wednesday night we are reminded of this truth at the conclusion of Romans chapter 8. This is what it says. Paul says, For I am persuaded, convinced, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, I think about the sermon subject this morning as we focused on some aspects of the spirit realm. Well, none of these things, Paul says, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, Herod, Caesar, governments, Russia, China, India, whatever, nothing, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Romans 11 was read just a moment ago. Paul continues and picks that theme back up again. John chapter 10, verse 27, hear this. My sheep, Jesus says, my sheep, they hear my voice, and I know them, and they know me. And notice here, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them or take them. The idea there is uh, suddenly, craftily, like a thief in the night. No one will take them from me. No robber, no one. Verse 29 of John 10, he says, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand then Jesus says this, I and the Father, I and my Father are one. All glory be to Christ. So when Jesus gives us this comforting word of assurance, He is God, God is God, I and my Father are one. One other final text, we could walk through the Scriptures this evening, introducing this subject matter. 
But this morning in Sunday school, we looked at this theme, so I thought I'd bring this one in Matthew 28, verse 20. In the Great Commission text, Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, go therefore, then verse 20, teach them all things to observe all things that I have commanded you. Now notice, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Well, what is that? He will see us securely, safely home. What Jesus is saying is, as you go forth faithfully in the gospel, in my name, I will be with you. Nothing will happen to you. And I will see you, child, safely all the way home to glory. How do we know this? We don't have time to unpack the full aspect of this doctrine. But Paul tells us in the book of Ephesians, we have the earnest of the Holy Spirit. We have the earnest price of the Holy Spirit in our vessel, in our possession. How do I know I'm saved? How do I know I'm within the kingdom of God? Well, we have the Holy Spirit. We bear the fruit of the Spirit. We have a love for God. It's kind of connecting to what we were talking about this morning. But the Holy Spirit that is given to us in the new birth and regeneration is the earnest price of what is to come in glory, in full, and final. Now back to our text, many of you are probably still there, back in the book of Jude, verses 24 and 25. Jude adds his landmark text to this doctrine that we know of as preserving grace. Just to remind us, when Jude opened the epistle, remember that his goal was to write a treatise or to write a, a systematic theology, but particularly upon the glories of salvation. He made clear that this was his aim. This was his goal, much like Paul's writing of the book of Romans. I don't know if Jude's would have been that extensive. Jude seems to be a little bit more to the point, pithy, summarize. Everything is in triads, as we've been seeing. So I think his would have been a reduced version, uh, nowhere on the sequence of Romans or the length of Romans. But he made clear that his desire was to write about our common salvation, he said. Remember, go back to verse 1. He says, to those who are called... Of God, sanctified by God the Father, preserved in Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, family of God, he says, While I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith. So what Jude is saying is, I wanted to continue this theme of our glorious mutual common salvation. But circumstances, the leading of the Spirit, has led me to write, exhorting you to contend for the faith. So as he completes this writing, he is confirming the church. He is guiding the church to be on guard. But now, as we've mentioned, he is directing their attention to the throne of God. He's now lifting our gaze upward. And and I would say, church, just to remind us as we think about our calls to worship and the preaching of the word and the benedictions, all of those things are designed for us to keep looking upward, not inward, not outward, and not on the things of this world, but to constantly be looking upward, focusing upon the throne of God, the throne of grace, and reminding ourselves of our mighty God, who he is, what he has done, and what he will do. Now notice here, first of all, how in verse 24, again, by introduction, he draws our attention, he focuses our praise twice at the beginning of verse 24 and verse 25 to focus upon God. And in case we've started to wander away, as we're often prone to do, Isaac White says, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Even sometimes in the middle of a preacher's lengthy message, we get it. 
Jude here knows how to bring the audience back. Notice how in verse 24 he says, now, it's almost like now, right? He's getting our attention. This is a transition statement. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Then verse 25, again, he says, to God, to God our Savior who alone is wise. Twice here he, he brings our attention back to the throne room of God, the person of God and his power. So point number one, we're going to frame our thoughts around four brief points this evening. Number one, the power of God, verse 24. Secondly, the promise of God. Thirdly, the person of God. And then lastly, the praise of God. Jude is pointing our gaze to God in these unique ways. So number one, the power of God, verse 24. Notice what it says. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. When we think about our faith, friends, as we think about our theology, one of the things that we know for sure is that as we study God's Word, as we study the things of God, the life of the Spirit, nourishing our souls upon the Word of God, we will either start with man or we will start with God. We know enough here at Grace to know that it is the uh, natural default aspect of the flesh to always start with man, to start with me. Me-centeredism or humanism. This is the way of the world. But the scriptural writers are always shepherding us well by pointing us to begin with God. We have to remind ourselves that God is always previous. From Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, whatever the beginning was, in that, God. God was before that. In the beginning, God. So God is always Previous. In fact, Hebrews 12, verse 2 tells us that Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. So we cannot have a right conception of God unless we understand that this God, who is exclusive in his holiness and godhood, for lack of better words, is absolutely all powerful. And this is what Jude directs our attention to from the very beginning the power of God. In fact, think about it like this What kind of God? is a God who cannot execute his own will. What kind of God is it that cannot do his own desires? You say, whoa, wait a second. You're heading off into a concerning area. Well, hold on a second. What kind of God would it be that gave a promise in Genesis chapter 3 to Adam and Eve? I will send you a redeemer, but yet could not execute that promise. What you have from Genesis to Revelation is God's display of his glorious ability to bring about the salvation of his people. Stephen Charnock says this, he says, The power of God is that ability and strength whereby he can bring to pass whatsoever he pleases, whatsoever his infinite wisdom may direct, and whatsoever the infinite purity of his will may resolve. As holiness is the beauty of all of God's attributes, so power is that which gives life and action to all the perfections of the divine nature of God. He says, how vain would it be the eternal counsels if power did not step in to execute them. Without power, his mercy would be but feeble pity. His promises an empty sound. His threatenings a mere, notice here, scarecrow. God's power is like himself, infinite, eternal, incomprehensible. It can neither be checked, restrained, nor frustrated by creation. Psalm 62 verse 11 says this, God has spoken once, twice have I heard this, 
that power belongs to God. Power belongs to God and to him alone. Spurgeon says God's power is like himself, self-existent, self-sustained. The mightiest men cannot add so much as a shadow of increased power to the omnipotent one. He sits on no buttressed throne and leans on no assisting arm. His court is maintained by his his court is not maintained by his courtiers, nor does it borrow its splendor from his creatures. He is himself the great central source and originator of all power. And friends, this is where Jude directs our attention. What good is it a God who is on a throne who cannot securely bring us home, protect us in the faith, complete our glorious salvation all the way to glorification? God's power is on full display in the world all around us. Psalm 89 verse 11, the psalmist says, The heavens are yours, O God. The earth also is yours. The north and the south, you have created them. Mount Tabor and Mount Hermon, rejoice in your name. You have a mighty arm, O God. Strong is your hand and high is your right hand. One other verse, Psalm 33 verse 9. For the Lord spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. What about balloons in the sky? What about Russia attacking Ukraine? What if China attacks Taiwan? What if we keep assisting Ukraine and deplete our resources? What if we get so weak that China attacks Taiwan and we're in no position to even defend ourselves? My goodness, we can't keep balloons in the sky from reaching one point of our continent to the other. What if, what if, listen, God brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of peoples of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Friend, listen, take comfort in the fact that your sovereign God reigns on the throne and you can rest in him, you can trust in him. The psalmist exults in this fact just by natural creative order. There's an old movie from yesteryear that maybe once a year we will watch, usually around Resurrection Sunday. It's the old uh, production of Moses and the Ten Commandments. You know what I'm talking about? It's funny because the Pharaoh in that old movie has this pattern coined phrase that he says again and again. He's constantly saying more pyramids, more stuff being built. And that actor, I can't remember his name, it doesn't matter, but here's the point. He says, so let it be written and then let it be done. So let it be written and let it be done. He walks around parading as Pharaoh, as the mightiest man in the world, by saying, so let it be written, so let it be done. He is a weakling. He is made in the image of God. He is a mere mortal. He is a mere man. And God is the only one who can simply speak, and it is done. God is the only one who can say, let there be light, and there is light. God is the only one who can speak to the very things that he has made and say, separate the oceans, separate the waters, design a fish to swallow his prodigal prophet. God is the only one who can cast out demons. God, in the ways that Jesus did, God is the only one who can do the miracles over the natural realm, spiritual realm, and physical realm. God is God, and there is no other. And you say, yeah, well, what about any other source of power you would point to? You cannot point to it with the fact that the power that they have is a gift from God. The power does not originate with themselves or itself 
or whatever it is that you may come up with. God is exclusive in his power. Now here in verse 24, Jude not only brings into the view the power of God, but notice his preservation or his preserving ability. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling or falling or losing you, for lack of better words. So what Jude is telling us is that God has power to preserve us. This word literally means to keep, like an entrusted treasure. God has the power to guard me, to guard you. God has the power to preserve us. Now, notice the duality. We see it all throughout the book of Jude, the human responsibility side, and then God's declaration of his side. For example, we recently saw last time together, verse 21, where Jude exhorts us, we are to keep ourselves in the sphere of God's love, in the centrality of the gospel, in the sure means of grace, which is the word of God. But here, he points our hearts to this comforting truth. Not only is it our task to keep ourselves within the sphere of God's love, but friend, he will hold you fast. He will give you that ability. He will give you that desire. But also just understand when the day comes where you can no longer rehearse the gospel to yourself, where you can no longer open the word of God because you're too weak and your hands are too feeble, he will hold you fast. He can has the ability to preserve you. He has the ability to guard that which has been entrusted to you, to him by the Father. In classical Greek, the metaphor, the word picture here is that of a sure-footed horse. One that is not wobbling around, but one that is sure-footed, stable, and strong. Our Lord is able to keep us from stumbling, from, from falling. Friends, be encouraged here this evening. He watches over us. He gives his beloved sleep when we lay our heads down at night. Every night when we lay down and prepare to go to bed, it's a gentle reminder that God is God and we are not. We turn on our alarm systems. We lock the door. Uh, We have our fences outside. We have the guard dogs. We have all these things, all these measures at plan A, plan B, plan C, plan D. But ultimately, we got to close our eyes and go to sleep. And when that happens, we have no control, really. We are the weakest that we'll ever be. We're unconscious. And so we commit ourselves to the Lord, to the one who never slumbers, to the one who never sleeps. So secondly, not only is his power displayed here in his preserving of his children, but secondly, we see it in his protecting of his children. And notice how this is personal. Jude says, now to him who is able to keep you, you, my child, you, not my child, like LeGrand's child, but God is speaking to you through his word. God is able to keep you, his child, from stumbling. This is a a promise that is personal. It is individual, but it is also corporate. It is is all-encompassing for us as his church. John chapter 17, verse 3, Jesus in his high priestly prayer says this, This, Father, this is eternal life, that my disciples will know you, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Our Father is able, because of our relationship with him, his care for us, his fatherly care for us as his children, he will see us home all the way to glory. Hebrews chapter 12 nails us home by knowing and guiding us and shepherding us about the fatherly care of God. Secondly, verse 24, we see God's power is displayed not only all, all over creation, not only in the spiritual realm and the physical realm, but Jude here also shows us how it is personal and powerful that God's power is displayed. But here, secondly, we see the promise of God. 
Verse 24, there is truly what we find here, a promise of hope and assurance. Here in verse 24, the second half, he is able to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Now, many are those men who will say that they are able to do something, but they are, they are not able. Men will say, I'll meet you tomorrow at 10 o'clock, and yet you arrive tomorrow at 10 o'clock, and they are not able to be there. And they will give you an excuse. I was delayed due to a tree across the road. I was delayed because I overslept. I was delayed whatever. Many are the empty words, hot airs, uh, promises of men. But notice Jude wants us to know that this promise is sure. He is able. The God who has all power is able to see through his promises. When God speaks, he will fulfill. When God promises, he will deliver. When God says, I will, he will, friend, as sure as you can take it to, well, I was going to say the bank, but after we saw our <laughs> uh, illustration this morning, we're not so sure about the banks uh, anymore. But as sure as the sun will rise in the morning, you can take God's promises uh, to the bank because they're to, to, to himself, they're, they're rooted in his self. Now, notice here, verse 24, we see that he gives us this promise that he has the ability to present us faultless before the throne of grace. This word faultless means without blemish, without blemish. You know, we live in a world that is vain, don't we? We look into the mirrors and we're constantly trying to fix what we see in the mirror. Life happens. Life is unfolding. We, 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 think, of, we think of things physically in the physical realm as that which is blemishes and we try to hide them or we try to help them along we understand that that's a natural aspect of being fallen being human but what we have here is a promise of spiritual faultlessness or a spiritual unblemishedness that can only come from those who've been washed by the blood of the lamb first peter chapter 1 verse 19 this word is used in reference to the unblemished nature of christ where peter says an unblemished and a spotless lamb. And so this word helps us to understand exactly what Jude is shepherding our hearts in here. In the same way that God looks at his sinless, perfect, spotless, unblemished lamb of a son, it is the same way that he looks at you and me. Not because of our moral righteousness, as we saw this morning, not because of our personal effort at, at physical reformation, when God looks at us and we are clothed in the robes of righteousness, the robes of Christ, he sees us as he sees his own son. I want to make a point here to maybe bridge the two. You know, preachers are prone to rehearse and rehash their messages. I, I am prone to do that. And one point I wish I'd made better this morning that, that I did not was simply the fact of understanding that when God looks at us, the importance of the, not only the doctrine of, of substitutionary atonement, the doctrine of double imputation, but also maybe making clear the true understanding of what justification is. Oftentimes you'll hear well-meaning teachers and well-meaning people in the church throughout time, and they'll say, now, justification is just like this, kids. Justification is just as if I'd never sinned. When I place my faith in Christ, uh, God declares me legally, forensically righteous. Well, that's true. But the idea, though, is not just as if I'd never sinned. Listen, I need more than never sinning. My moral righteousness, it will send me to hell. 
and your moral righteousness will send you to hell. Listen, if we're going to stand before the presence of a thrice holy God, we need the righteousness uh, of Christ, a righteousness that comes outside of ourselves. We need something given to us, placed upon us, so that when God sees us, he sees not us, he sees the righteousness of his son. Listen, we can't even look into the sun, the physical created sun, for longer than a split second with unaided eyes. That's a created thing. We're going to dare stand in front of the holiness of God without the robes of Christ or the righteousness of Christ. That would be true, utter madness. So here we have the promise of God. What's that promise? Jude says he is able to present you unblemished. He is able to present you faultless before the throne of God, before the presence of God. Notice where this takes place, verse 24, in the presence of his glory. We will stand before him. No, his glory. What is his glory? Well, his glory is exactly that which Moses desired to see, Exodus 33. Oh, God, Yahweh, show me your glory. Have you ever asked God to show you his glory? What a, what a prayer. What a passion. What an indicative prayer that shows the heart of Moses. We're enamored with so many lesser things, but do we pray, God, would you show me your glory? But here's the problem. God could not show him his glory. God showed him something. God said, I'll show you my hinder parts. I will show you the shadow of my rear side, the, the shadow, whatever. That's all metaphorical language to help us to understand that God showed him something. And whatever it was, we can say this for sure, Moses was never the same. Moses glowed. His physical appearance was changed, and they were afraid of him. We can look at the transfiguration of Christ, and whatever that was, the apostles didn't want to leave. Something so amazing, so divine, they were like, let's just build a tent here and reflect all the days of our life drinking Starbucks and just talk about the glories of what we've just seen. Let's just never leave, build the campfire, and just rehearse the glories of Christ. So the reality of the point I'm trying to make is simply this. Jude gives us the promise that we will one day fully and finally, robed in the righteousness of Christ, be able to stand faultless before his throne in the glory of God, before his glory. We will see his glory. We will know his glory. We will enjoy his glory forever and ever. Now, we're far too world-bound. We are far too earthlings. Now, many of you who, just forgive me, are, have lived longer in grace than others, you sense this and know this more than the younger people do. Life is in front of them. Experiences are yet before. There's, there's joys to still be explored and understood. We get that. But the older we get, part of the preparing for heaven process is slowly releasing not only this world from our grasp, but enlarging our hearts and looking heavenward and saying, Lord, I'm ready to come. Dying in the dying process is not only for us, but it's also for those who watch us. I'm not trying to be insensitive here tonight, but many of the prayer requests that we're praying for on our prayer sheet, uh, we, we're missing sometimes why, why they're there. And yes, we're to pray for them. Yes, we're to continue doing all the things that we do. But, but if you miss the fact that God wants you to witness 
that whole process and receive the outpouring of his grace and also be taught that this world is not our home, you will miss it all. The point of praying is not to keep people from dying, but ultimately to prepare us for heaven. We pray that God would save the lost, give preserving grace to his children in their hour of need. But the goal, again, I know this sounds insensitive to some of you, and I don't mean it to be, but the goal is we're not trying to keep them here. The goal is we're all journeying together to prepare to go before the presence of his exceeding joy and glory. We will know his glory. We will enjoy his glory forever. And that is why a Christian funeral is different than any other funeral. Because it's not a funeral. This world is not our home. It's actually a moment of celebration. It is a, more than a celebration of life. It's an exalting in our mighty God. It's exalting in his faithfulness to his people. And it's a worship service for all of us that says our day is coming. Oftentimes I learned from my granddad as a little kid attending the hospital visitation with him. One of the things he'd say to someone on their deathbed is, if you see Jesus before I do, will you tell him I love him? But then he'd say this. They would smile and have a tear in their eye, knowing what he's saying, like, you're close, friend. But then he would say, if I see Jesus before you do, I'll tell him you love him. In other words, nothing is certain. We think we know what's taking place. We think we know what is reality. We don't know anything, friends, except for this. He is able, Jude says, to present you. He is able to present me faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. And we will share in that joy again and again for all eternity. C.S. Lewis says this, If I find that in this world there is nothing created or tangible that can ultimately satisfy my soul, we were talking about that restless, unclean spirit this morning. But C.S. Lewis says it pertinent, uh, succinctly. He says, Then I am left to conclude that I'm not created for this world because nothing satisfies my soul. Ultimately, I'm left to conclude I am made for eternal glories and joys. Well, friend, that can only be found through the personal work of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Revelation 19.7 says this, Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. What a beautiful portrait of glory that awaits. Number one, the power of God. Number two, the promise of God. Number three, he points us to the source of our preserving grace, and that is the person of God here in verse 25. Look with me. He says, To God alone, our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. So he points us to the person of God who is able to carry out. Remember singing the song in children's time or whatever, he is able, he's able, I know he's able, I know my Lord is able to carry me through. Well, how do we know he's able? Well, we pointed to his power, but our God is, he is sovereign. Psalm 103 verse 19, the Lord reigns, his throne is in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. 1 Timothy 1:17. now to the king eternal, immortal, Invisible to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. What Paul is telling us is that there is, there is one king over all other kings. But here in verse 25, we see that he's not only a sovereign God, he is our sovereign Savior. 
He's not just a sovereign God. Scripture makes that clear. But the beauty of this text is that it's personal as we've drawn out as our Father. He is our sovereign Savior, and Jude brings us back to this. To God, notice, our Savior. To God, our Savior, who alone is wise. Friend, is He your Savior? Do you know Him savingly? Do you know Him personally? I hope so. We've already referenced John chapter 10. We're not going to turn back there, but if you are taking notes, I would encourage you to go back and just mark down John chapter 10, that promise that he saves us and he will not lose us. He is our all-sufficient, sovereign Savior. One commentator says this, Behold now the Trinitarian work of God in our salvation. The Father devised salvation's plan. He saves us. The Son secures us. And the Spirit seals us. This is our triune salvation in the person, the triune person of our Almighty God. If that's not fuel for your praise this evening, then there's not much else that will be. But that leads us to number four, the praise of God, the praise of God. He says, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, what? Be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever, amen and amen. So this word glory that we see here in verse 25 is where we get our word, the root word, doxa, from the Greek for doxology. This is a song that we sing. You can say it like this. This is a song that is not only be in our hearts, but this is a song that should be on our lips as his people as we sing about the glories of not only who God is, but the glories of what is to come. He said, well, what will we be doing in heaven? Well, this is one of the songs, one of the many songs we will be singing as we serve him, as we rejoice in him. We will be praising him for his majesty. We'll be praising him, notice verse 25, for his glory and his majesty, his dominion and his power, both now and forever. So there's many things we could talk about uh, to describe this aspect of the praise of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords being upon our lips. But I'll just simply ask you this, child of God or professing child of God, if you're not praising the Lord today, you're not going to praise him tomorrow. And I don't mean a song. I'm talking about a life. I'm talking about a spirit. If the bent of your heart, the God that you claim to know, is not, if verses 24 and 25, verse 25 specifically, it's not on your heart and in your lips. Friend, examine the state of your condition. Examine the state of your heart. Because it is both now and forever. Praise is always right. Praise is always glorious. Praise is always appropriate. And I'm not talking about maybe shape note singing out of the Redback Hymnal. That's great. Some people would say, well, no, that, that's... That's the only praise. That's the, where the real praise is. And some people say, well, no, no, no. Praise is a form, like a style of it. No, no, no. Praise is a cappella. Now, when we go a cappella, that's where we're really praising. We've gone to another level. That, that's some real praise right there. Some would say, on and on. You get the idea. Friends, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a praise that is rooted not in a genre or a style or an instrument, but praise that is rooted in our God. So turn with me very quickly to Psalm 100. Psalm 100, and let the psalmist guide us as he does so often as we think about 
the anthem of our praise. We'll maybe take time just to look at two examples from Scripture of this understanding that if you know this God, you must worship God. It necessitates to have a relationship with this God. You must then respond in praise. There's only one response that we can give. As you're turning to Psalm 100, I'm going to begin in verse 96. Just read some examples for you. Psalm 96, verse 1. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord and bless his name. Proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day. Well, wait a second. I don't feel like that. Is there any mention here about feeling? Is there any mention that starts with us? Remember we said back in our theology, everything begins with either me or God. We always begin with God. Friend, if, you're, if you don't understand that, if you fight that, you're hurting yourself. You're missing the greater point. You're like an immature child who doesn't understand that, that this is the very marrow for your spiritual being, your very spiritual life. Friend, begin with God and everything else gets, gets straight. God and his character are the plumb line to life. Everything gets rightly understood and rightly affixed when you begin with God and start there. So we saw this morning, I believe it's Psalm 118 in my memory. This is the day that the Lord has made, so we will rejoice and be glad in it. You know, oftentimes we can feel like it's inauthentic when you ask someone, how are you doing today? And if you say good, of course, if we say good and say that all the time, there can be times we're lying about that, right? I mean, we understand that. But at the same time, it's not inauthentic to be good. And it has nothing to do with our being good. But it has everything to do with I'm good because I'm looking at him. I'm looking to him. Now to him who is able to keep me from falling and stumbling. Well, it doesn't look good. It shouldn't be good. Your life is crumbling. Well, that's true. But he isn't. And so I'm good. Because this is the day that the Lord has made. So therefore, I, I can rejoice. But see, the way our natural world thinks, well, you're being inauthentic. I happen to know you lost your mother last week, or you lost your job last week. So you're not, you're, I can't trust you. No, 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 friend. I'm looking to him. I'm good. He gives, he takes away. Blessed be the, uh, the name of the Lord forever. So our praise is not something that's rooted in circumstances or personal reality. No, no, I get it. I get it. This sounds like otherworldly. I get it. It's so uncommon. It's so unusual, but it actually isn't before the people of God. This is the command for the people of God. Go into Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise. Make a joyful shout to the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord. How? Now, to make the distinctions as we saw this morning, uh, we're not just simply to serve the Lord. We're talking about the efforts of like religious reformation, activity for the Lord. That's good. But why we do it? Now notice how the psalmist addresses both. Serve the Lord with gladness. Many are they that serve the Lord, but there's no gladness there, right? Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. What the psalmist is saying, the source of your praise is not you or how you feel or your bank account or the physical ailments that you have. The source of your praise is almighty God. He says, verse 3, know the Lord that he is God. It is he that has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Friend, this evening, number 4, verse 25 Praise your way to glory. Praise your way through the storm. Praise your way through the battle. Praise your way through the grief. Praise your way through the joys. 
Praise your way all the way through because if you're not singing now and if you're not resting in him now, friend, you're not going to be resting in him tomorrow. And I don't say that condemningly. I just say that as a reality. Praise your way because of who our sovereign God is. The song doesn't begin with us. The song begins in him. All glory be to Christ. He will hold us fast. He will hold you fast. He will hold me fast. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, how refreshing, timely, and helpful your word is for us. And we thank you for it. We exalt in our sovereign God. We exalt in our almighty God. We have to shepherd our own souls, Lord. We are frail. We are but dust. You know this. You made us. You tell us in your word that you know that we are frail children of dust. You know our frame, that we are weak. And yet, God, you constantly give us blessing upon blessing, resource upon resource, direction upon direction to be able to see your hand of goodness and kindness in everything. Father, tune our hearts to sing your praise. God's people, his bride, we're a singing people. We're the only people that sing like we sing. Again, not genre, styles, or instruments. We're talking about the song of our king. The ways that we sing as a people who've been redeemed. Have we been redeemed? I hope so. Lord, as we prepare our hearts for your table and rehearse another song of your grace, we pray your spirit would give comfort. We pray that your spirit would confirm. We pray that your spirit would lead us to repent. Father, would you give us the grace that we need? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.